Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and today's guest is Chanel Clayton, New York Times bestselling author of the new book, The Cuban Heiress. She also have released previously next year in Havana, which was a Reese's book club pick. Her books are delightful mysteries, thrillers, kind of things that keep you guessing the whole way. And this latest book, The Cuban Heiress, is no different. It tells the story of a lot of things that happen on a uh, a doomed ship that sets sail. And I don't really want to give much more away than that. We talk a little bit about it in the conversation itself. But the thing that I really found fascinating is it is based on a true story of a very specific ship and the things that happened on it. The crux of this conversation that I have with Chanel is all about her lifelong love of mystery. You know, sometimes people come on here and talk about very, very out of left field passions of theirs. And sometimes it's a little bit more specific to their books. And and it makes a lot of sense when you think about someone who has become a New York Times bestselling mystery writer. You know, how do you become a bestselling mystery writer? You spend your life diving into those specific stories. So during this conversation, we get into the first mysteries that Chanel started to read, the books that I read as well as a child that kind of have helped form and shape the reader I have become, and so, so much more. In honor of talking about not only the mysteries that Chanel is writing, but the mysteries of her childhood, I want to give you a book recommendation, a book that I have talked about a lot over the past uh, several years because I just love it so much. It is Meddling Kids by Edgar Cantero. Many, many people who have read this book, and I I am the same, like to describe it as adult Scooby-Doo, and that is because the author Edgar has kind of suggested that be a good description of the book himself. Uh, I like to think of it as like Scooby-Doo meets H.P. Lovecraft meets Stephen King's The It, but in a very kind of fun way, which sounds very, very strange, but it's a story that takes place at the beginning in 1977. There are four dogs, or four dogs, there are four teenagers and a dog who is a Weimariner, which I specifically love. If you've been listening to me for any amount of time, you know, I have a very old Weimariner of my own, but these four teenagers and their dog solve a mystery of this place called Sleepy Lake. And then in 1990, 20 something year olds now all these years later, they have to get back together and try to pick up where they left off and solve a mystery that is very entangled in their own group. Um, but much like Stephen King's It, they kind of have to 
find themselves again and pull themselves out of the depths of some challenging situations before they can kind of get the band back together as it would mean. It's so fun. It's so interesting. It's a perfect kind of kickoff to what I call as pre-spooky season here in July. You know, the fall is going to come faster than you know it, but I like to start reading some creepy and scary stories and mysteries right around this time of year. So if you feel the same way, Meddling Kids by Edgar Cantero is a great book for you, as is The Cuban Heiress by today's guest, Chanel Clayton. So definitely check both of those out. As always, if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Passions and Prologues. And you can email me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. I love, love, love hearing all the things you are all passionate about. Every single month, I pick a random person who has sent me an email and I send them a bookshop.org gift card just as a thank you for interacting with the podcast. It really means the world to me. And one last plea, if you do listen to this episode anytime and you hear this request, if you could just tell like one other person about the podcast or leave a review, it helps people find us just a little bit more easily. And it really means the world to me. Okay, that is enough housekeeping. I am so excited for you all to hear this conversation with Chanel Clayton, New York Times bestselling author of The Cuban Heiress on Passions and Prologues. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Okay, Chanel, I am super excited to ask this question. What is something you are super passionate about that we're going to discuss today? So I am a really big reader. Um, It's definitely like one of my lifelong passions. That's probably the defining thing about my personality. So I especially love reading mysteries. That was something from childhood that has kind of carried me through through adulthood. I love it. So you, you said that like kind of discovered your love of mysteries when you were a child. Do you remember sort of like the first one or kind of how that came to be? So definitely Nancy Drew mysteries. And I remember, you know, how exciting it was. Like I, I was a big library reader. So most of my, my reading came from the library. But it was really cool when my parents would, you know, buy me a book. And I remember the old school kind of yellow spines. Like I, it, it was such a treat. And so I still have my original Nancy Drew's with the yellow spines and I don't have the whole collection, but mm-hmm. I, I have like the ones that were favorite. I can like still visualize the covers kind of. And, and it was always such a special moment. It's so the second that you said like the, the yellow covers, that is something I haven't thought about in probably decades now at this mm-hmm. point. And the second you said it, it's like a, like just vividly, I know exactly what you're talking about, like that exact look and feel. And it's something I never really thought about, but you're right. Like I feel like every book, when you're younger, like they do have the 
especially books that are series, whether it's like Nancy Drew or Goosebumps, like they all have a, a specific format. And I'm like, vi- I'm vividly remembering that now that you mentioned that. That's, that's wild how brains work. Well, and I, I will say like, I was the kind of kid that I think in the back, they would print out, you know, all the numbered ones. And so I would like cross off and keep a list of like, which ones I'd read. And I had like my little reading log going. And I don't think I read them in order, which now I, I think it was probably just accessibility. Like I got what I could at the library, but now I'm like, oh, I wish I had read them in order almost because that's that's kind of how I like to read series now. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I'm, like I said, I for me, that that was, it was Goosebumps was the one that I had like, yeah. I think by the time I was in middle school, there were like 60 or 70 of them. And I, same thing, like between my friend and I, we had most of them, but obviously not all of them. And yeah, same thing. Like it was like, I would read number four and then number like 27. And those are all standalone stories. So it wasn't as connected, but you mentioned that it's, has been a lifelong thing. So after like Nancy, do you remember kind of like what came next or like, what were the things that you started as you got a little bit older? Like what were the, the mysteries that you found joy in, in reading? I've read a lot of adult mysteries and I remember being pretty young and reading, you know, sometimes you read kind of grisly, grisly mystery books, but it was really whatever I could pick up. As I mentioned, I was a really big library reader. So I would just go and spend like hours walking around and, and trying new things. And I just, I think I loved suspense because I would be so immersed in the story and, and, and what was going on. And it felt like, you know, you could just disappear for a few hours and try to figure out what, you know, what was happening, who, who the perpetrator was. And I, I really liked, I guess, the the interesting part of, of trying to work all that out in my mind. Yeah, I, there's something special. And I remember this, I was also a big library guard. My mom was a, a teacher for, for 40 years and we were, books are obviously a huge part of our lives. And like, I remember anytime she and I would go to the library or to like, uh, Barnes and Noble or different, you know, different bookstores. There was like that incredible, you felt like such an adult when you were a little kid, when your mom or your dad would say like, yeah, go and pick out whatever you want. Like that freedom of mm-hmm. like browsing the stacks on your own. And you thought like, yeah, I'm just getting away with something, I guess. Yes. Well, and I had to say, cause you brought up the R.L. Stein thing. I, so I was pretty much allowed to read anything. My parents were not very, you know, kind of like looking at what I was reading but I was not allowed to read their Fear Street books. Mm-hmm. And so I would sneak them. I would go to like sleepovers at my friends' houses that were allowed to read them. And I have vivid memories of like being at these sleepovers. I feel bad in hindsight for my friends because like I wouldn't talk to them. I would just sit and like read their Fear Street books. So when you said that about Goosebumps, that that kind of visceral memory came back to me. Um, you mentioned like sneaking. So I weirdly, same thing. Like I don't think I wasn't, not allowed to read the fair sheet. I just like, I love the goosebumps. But then actually years ago, I had the opportunity. I, I got to meet R.L. Stein at my previous job. Like we had that, yeah, we'd like set up this interview with him where he was going to talk to our CEO about some stuff. And I was talking to him because I got to set it up. And I told him that I used to, when I was in like fourth and fifth grade, I would like put his books in, in like the math or like sociology books yes. we are supposed to be reading. And so I told him, like in person, I was like, by the way, you're the reason I'm I'm bad at math. And he's like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I was like, I used to sneak your books. And I was like, so you're the reason I'm bad at math. And he looks at me knowing that I was working for a library company. He's like, yeah, but you work in the book industry now, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, you're welcome. And he just walked away. <laughs> I got dunked on by R.L. Stein, which is like my favorite thing of all time. Yeah, it was, he was incredible. So like for me, I could, that's definitely my, my origin of, of loving scary, like, you know, quote unquote, scary books. And I do, I feel like I've interviewed so many authors who have told me that they read Stephen King 
probably before they were supposed to, which is like indicative. But do you remember any, like vividly any of those mystery books like that you were reading that were maybe a little bit beyond what you should have been, but have kind of like stuck in your brain ever since? I remember reading like Tammy Hoag's Early Mysteries and she had her one of her first series. And I cannot remember, I think it was set in like Michigan. It was somewhere north because I remember like the ice and the cold was a really big part of the story. Mm. But it was a lot of like kid disappearances. And that was kind of scary, I think, being a little kid. And I was a little kid that kind of had anxiety. So reading these mysteries was probably not the best thing for me. But I I couldn't put them down. Like they were, there was just something so gripping about them, I think. So I definitely remember reading those and then probably having a hard time sleeping, (laughs) like being being a little bit afraid. Uh, But no, it was... There was just something about the man. I read Mary Higgins Clark. You know, I I kind of, and I think a lot of it too was I would read other people's books. So like if my mom had a book, you know, I would I would pick that up. And so that's kind of how I got into like more adult mysteries or, you know, my grandmother or something. It was how I found a lot of authors. You know, Robert B. Parker, I remember reading um, when I was a kid. So I don't know if this is the same for you, but I remember. So I I read kind of like widely when I was younger, obviously read a lot of like young adult, but I, I always read really widely. And then because of, you know, working at a library company, obviously, and then interviewing authors, I read widely as well. But I remember like, I don't know if it was college, but like I I hadn't really read many Agatha Christie books, but I remember then picking those up like when I was in my 20s and just being like blown away at how these books that are, you know, however old they are, a century old, you know, even older, whatever it is at this point, and like how they could still surprise me. And that that was kind of like my later in life gateway to wanting to read mysteries like it sounds like you've pretty pretty consistently read mystery books, but what are some of the ones that you like as you became an adult? Like, do you find yourself trying to seek out the books that can shock you with their twists, or like, I guess, what is it for you that keeps you wanting to go back to mystery books? So, what I really love in mysteries now is I love really atmospheric ones. So, Tana French is a huge favorite of mine. I love like her Dublin Murder Squad books. Because I feel like she really just immerses you in the setting. I feel like I'm in Ireland. I feel like I'm walking the streets with these detectives, you know, as they're going through the mysteries. And and I think it goes back to what I kind of was mentioning earlier is that feeling of like an ultimate escape. You know, she really just transports you and, and you're completely sucked in by the book. And I love a book that kind of unfurls, maybe not slowly, but just very kind of like it envelops you and that you want to stay up late reading because you're just so caught up in it. And and that's what I love about her books. Jane Harper is another favorite. She writes really gorgeous Australian set mysteries. I just read her latest. And it's always, you know, I think it's such a challenge. As an author, I appreciate this. And as a reader, I'm so grateful for it. It's so hard when you write, you know, eight or 10 books to have every single book be like a touchdown and and for the readers to be like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And that's what I love so much about some of my favorites is consistently I'm just like, oh, these are such phenomenal books. So those are those are definitely two that that I really love. Do you find as someone who writes books that do have an air of mystery to them, like do you find yourself needing to separate your writing from the books you're reading? Or like do you feel like there's a pressure for you beyond just the pressure of, you know, having a lot of readers at this point who are expecting great stories. But like, do you feel like there's pressure to need to want to write a mystery that's like up to a standards that you would want to read as a reader? Or are you able to kind of separate those two things? 
So I think my favorite authors are the ones that make me forget I'm a writer when I'm reading. Mm. And that's what I will say. I think kind of when I was talking about like the immersive quality of Tana French or like a Jane Harper is when I read their books, like my writer brain completely shuts off. And I am, I guess, kind of like the the little kid reading mysteries again, like that, that passion really comes through for me. Because that is, I'll, I'll be honest, as a writer, it is hard when you're reading. And I get this when I watch TV too. Like sometimes your brain will kind of go into writer mode and you'll like analyze the plot or the character decisions. And it, it can cut away from the enjoyment to some extent because it's, you know, it's a different way of kind of enjoying the medium. But I feel like when I'm so immersed in a story that I'm just like a fangirl again, like I love that part. And and that's what so many, you know, writers do well. Um, Alyssa Cole is another favorite. She wrote when no one is watching and that was phenomenal. And that was one of those books that like, for me, the measure is always like, did I read this in one sitting? So I just couldn't stop what I was doing. And it's like 3 a.m. And I'm like, okay, I have to go to bed, you know? And those are the books that that have really done that for me. And for me as a writer, you know, I think I just kind of, writing is a very creative um, outlet for me. I'm not a particularly creative person. When, you know, we talked at the beginning, I was like, I don't have a lot of you know, really cool passions outside of books, to be honest. And so this is like my one sort of safe space where I can just explore, you know, what I want to write and and feel that freedom. Mm -hmm. And so I try not to have too much pressure, you know, to try to be at a standard or write like someone. I just kind of try to be myself and put what I want to say out on the page. And then, you know, obviously in edits, those are always the times when you kind of clean things up. And, you know, that those first drafts, I feel like are really the the kind of free space to to just explore the story and the direction that your characters are leading you in. We mentioned before we started recording that I, I talked to Lisa Scatolini recently and she joked with me on her episode that she has like no idea what chapter two is going to be while she's writing chapter one and like she just kind of makes it up on the fly. She actually told me that she needs to remind herself every book that she actually knows what she's doing, which is very funny thinking about someone who's written 35 books. But for someone who writes mysteries, you know, people are so like, I, I think I, I don't like when people think this, but there's so many readers who like determine if they liked a mystery or not based on like the twist or the surprise. Mm-hmm. So when you're writing, are you thinking in advance? Like, do you plan that stuff out or are you like, you know, I'll get to the like shocking reveal or whatever it is when you get to it? So that's it. That is a great question. And that's something actually, so I will be honest, probably this is where my reading influences my writing. I actually feel really strongly about twists and reveals. So I have a similar process to what Lisa was saying where I don't plot a ton before I start my stories. I'm very much kind of what we call a pantser and that the plot develops organically as I'm writing and as my characters sort of lead me in the direction. But one thing that is really important to me, and I and this comes from me being a reader, is I always want to make sure my twists feel realistic. You know, as a reader, that is my biggest frustration probably when I'm reading a book and, you know, you get a twist that you're like, wait, what? You know, it's not quite something that really like fits the book and you feel like it's maybe in there for more shock value. And so that's something I always try to be very cognizant of with my readers. I feel like we kind of are developing a relationship as the book goes on. And I want to make sure that, you know, if there is a twist, there are enough clues in the book that the the twist doesn't feel like it's coming out of nowhere and they can go back and be like, oh my goodness, you know, I didn't realize how these things connected. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I think when we read suspense, we all kind of want to feel like we're the detective, right? Like we're solving the mystery alongside the main character. And so it's, for me, important to kind of lay that groundwork and and have readers feel like they can be part of it and have some agency in, you know, figuring out who who did it. Uh, that is such an in, like incredible way of of mentioning of saying like how we as a reader 
feel like we're the detective alongside them. Because for so long, I've, I've thought about this as like, I love literary fiction. I love like, what is something I always say on, on the podcast is I love small stories with big emotions. So I very much love books that are about like, you know, family and, and relationships. And for literary fiction, you know, the entire book can be a beautiful story. And if it ends a way that maybe I don't agree with or didn't like, it doesn't ruin the experience for me. But for a mystery, if I'm reading a mystery, and I know so many other people are like this too, if the whole book is like keeping them on, on the edge of their seat, but then like the whodunit or like the, the big reveal at the end like, kind of sucks, they're like, ah, I hated this book. Like it, and it really is. I think it, you're right. I think it's because there's like this expectation because we're sort of like seeing it through the eyes of the investigator or, you know, kind of uncovering stuff as we go. That it's like, if these things don't add up, then the whole book is like ruined for people. I think that's so, I've always wondered that, like why people will say they didn't like a mystery book specifically because of the ending. But I think you kind of nailed it. Well, and I'll be honest, like I'm very flexible kind of on endings because I know some people feel very strongly about mysteries and um, Tana French, her first book is a great example. I don't want to spoil, but you know, the way she resolves things, mm-hmm. it, it's it's kind of a changer for the genre. You know, she did it differently. And I loved that about the book. And I know I, everyone kind of has their own feelings on if they want a nice, you know, neat resolution or if they like things to be a little bit more open-ended or unresolved. And for me, it's like, if you hook me in the book, I'll stay with you to the end, even if maybe I don't get that neat resolution. Like, I'm I'm perfectly okay with that. that and I think that's probably the healthy way to approach a book. Um, as an author, I don't assume you're one of those people who like would go on, you know, like Goodreads and be like, this is a one-star book because like <laughs> the ending. Yeah, those, 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 don't be one of those people. Um, so your your new book, the the Cuminaris, just came out at the time we're recording. We we're recording this literally two days after the book came out, and we were joking beforehand. This is your, uh, as I I call it, like your media car wash day. I'm one of I think you said twelve interviews you're doing. So oh, it's early in the day, so hopefully this won't be too boring for you to kind of present. But can you kind of give us the elevator pitch of the books? So people sort of know what they're getting into. Sure. No, I, 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 this is one of the best parts. I will warn my voice is going a little bit. So sorry if I, if I have a little bit of a voice break, but no, this is one of the awesome parts of the job. We spend so much time, you know, at your computer kind of by yourself that I love talking about books. So, so the Cuban Eris is set in 1934 and it's set on a luxury cruise ship and it was a real ship. It was called the SS Morrow Castle and it would do a round trip voyage from New York to Havana. And so on its last trip, um, tragically a fire broke out. And there's a lot of mystery surrounding the fire, sort of, you know, trying to understand the fire's origins. It's still kind of unsettled what happened. And so I really found it to be kind of an interesting setting to take my fictional characters, Elena and Catherine, and put them aboard the ship. And, and I know that, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of the books you write, you, you have an interest in, you know, having grown up in Florida and, you know, having kind of Cuban heritage. Like, there's a lot of that. I know that you like to kind of examine in your your writing, but what was it about this particular, you know, the cruise ship and and the the tragic story about it that drew you to want to make it a setting for your story? You know, I was really fascinated by the fact that it was a moment in history that I was less familiar with. Mm. As a Cuban-American, I really have a passion for learning more about, you know, my heritage and sort of going back in time and looking at earlier periods in Cuban history. And so I was really fascinated by the ship, the fact that I was, you know, not as familiar with it and just all of the natural mystery surrounding it. You know, the captain actually died kind of under 
mysterious circumstances the night that the fire broke out. So it was one of those, you know, situations where real life really was as, as interesting as fiction in terms of, you know, all of these components. You have the Great Depression going on. You have the Cuban Revolution of 1933, which has just ended. And then the recent end of, of Prohibition. So it really was kind of a tinderbox where there were a lot of tensions bubbling to the surface on this confined space of the ship. Yeah, and and you're like there having kind of researched the the real story itself. Like like you said, it, it's it, it's almost like it's something I hadn't heard about before. You know, I I saw your book come out and and I looked it up, and you're right. Like it's something that I also I had, it's a pretty big tragedy for something I really did not know anything about it. It's it's like one of those things where it, it makes me think about all the things you can mine in history to find these like these stories that are just waiting to be uncovered. And I also feel like there's, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like I love the idea of when books are set on like ships or it's the same thing why like, you know, if, if you read like any horror stories set in space, like it, it's, you know, it's set on the ship. Like you, I love the fact that like people, you can't escape, you can't get anywhere. It's, it's one of these things like, like murder on the Orient Express to talk about Agatha Christie and like, <laughs> There's nowhere you can go. So like for you, when when you have a story like that, where, you know, there's really going to be one specific setting, do, do you have to work harder as an author to write a story that kind of keeps the plot moving along? Or do you, are you able to sort of take advantage of there being one specific location? I think, you know, it definitely has kind of advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, that's a great way that you kind of put it where on the one hand, you know, you are dealing with a limited setting, but on the other, that setting really almost acts as a plot point because it is a restriction for your characters. It's kind of the locked room mystery. Mm -hmm. And so it was really fascinating for me. I had not written a book that was in such a, a confined space. And so as a writer, it was a, a new challenge and kind of a new mystery for me to be able to to work with and, and like a puzzle where I would put all the pieces together to see how it fit in. So I, I really enjoyed that part of it. That was... Um, Probably one of my favorite things. And, you know, having written historical fiction, each book I kind of add a little bit more suspense, but this is definitely, you know, the the one that has the most mystery for me. And so I really got to, you know, use that passion that I have as a reader and, and put it into the book. And that was so much fun. Yeah, I love that so much. I, I want to keep asking you questions, but like I said, I, this is a day you're doing a million different things. So I have one more question for you. I end every episode by asking authors for a recommendation of any kind. It, it can be a book or it can be, you know, a, a TV show or a recipe you like, basically just like one thing that you recommend that you want more people to know about. And again, it can be a book. We've been talking about books all the time, so that's totally fine. But what's something that you want to recommend to my listeners? So since we're talking about mysteries, I will plug uh, Only Murders in the Building, which is a show on Hulu that I absolutely love. And we're talking about confined spaces and it's a mystery show set in this luxury apartment building in New York. And I can't recommend it enough. It's so much fun and just a really great show to watch. Yeah, I will. I will co-sign that recommendation. It is a delightful show. Aww. Yeah, you know, you have been so much fun. This is so so wonderful, and the book is so thrilling. People are going to absolutely love the Cuban heiress. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. And sorry for the slight voice bobble, but thank you very much. I appreciate it. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. 
It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other Evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.